Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for the many things you taught us from 1 Corinthians. Thank you for enriching us in every way and confirming your testimony of Christ Jesus in our midst. May we finish as we have started, on our guard, firm in the faith, courageous and strong and doing everything in love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. After the grandeur of chapter 15, this final chapter in 1 Corinthians may seem like a journey down the mountain. Nonetheless, I think it teaches us some really important things about what it means to be a church. Up until now, pretty much everything that Paul has said in 1 Corinthians has dealt with some pastoral or theological issue that was causing division, confusion, disobedience, disorder, disruption, or straight-up disbelief. But now Paul's dealing with just a couple of things by way of conclusion, which are really instructive about how church can and should be. First thing in this chapter that Paul teaches us about church is that it's certainly local, but it's also international. As the Nicene Creed puts it, we are one holy Catholic or universal church. And though in the first century the gospel had not yet reached the whole world, it was certainly well on its way to having spread across nation and culture throughout the Roman Empire. Just in this chapter alone, Paul mentions at least five different provinces. At verse 1, he speaks of Galatia, verse 3, Judea, verse 5, Macedonia, verse 15, Achaia, and in verse 19, Asia. And each of these provinces had very different cultures and conditions, ranging from European and Eastern, Jew and Arab, Greek and Roman, urban and rural. That the church spread so rapidly throughout these diverse regions is testimony to an understanding that the gospel is for all men and women everywhere, and that no allegiance can be more important or more central to our identity than that which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. What that means in effect is that we have a responsibility not only to address our own parochial needs, but also the struggles of our brothers and sisters in Christ. For though we may be culturally and geographically very different to us, or others will be, that they will share the one faith, the one baptism and the one Lord. In Paul's day that meant money being sent to the saints in Jerusalem, back to the birthplace of the church. And though that may seem surprising, that Judea as a region was far from wealthy. And with famine and the exclusion of Christians from food distribution at the temple, poverty could be a daily grind for many in the church in Jerusalem. And Paul was not collecting money only from Corinth. He collected money from all the Gentile churches that he had started and was now revisiting. That money should go from the provinces to Jerusalem, from Gentile believers to Jewish believers, was an extraordinary testimony to the power of the gospel to break down walls of hostility, to create in Christ one new humanity, a single humanity reconciled to God through the cross. 
And the framework for doing that, it wasn't an impulsive response to an emotive or guilt-provoking plea. Instead, it was a considered and sober decision to put money aside every week, on the first day of the week when they met for worship, and to do so in keeping with income. There's no compulsion there, and nor is there any amount specified. What's important is that giving be the cheerful response of a grateful heart, and that we give as we have received. And how that money is dealt with after it's been received should be transparent and beyond reproach. As Paul says in verse 3, whoever takes the money to Jerusalem should be approved by the church and sent with letters of introduction and commendation. Certainly Paul did not want to be seen to be the holder or the manager of church funds. Makes sense then that ministers in the church could be expected to do just about any job in the church, but don't ask them to count money or be the treasurer. Not a good look. Another example of sharing resources with poorer churches is the use of personnel. Both Timothy in verse 10 and Apollos in verse 12 are preachers and teachers, and they look to be going to Corinth to assist the church in furthering the gospel. Now Paul's a little concerned for Timothy because he's still young and he's not forthright, but he's confident that Timothy will carry on the work of the Lord when he does come. As for Apollos, he seems to be willing, but he's certainly in no hurry to go back to Corinth. Last time he was there, he developed a bit of a cult following, and he didn't want that to happen again. It is Christ alone who is our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. So what do we learn from this as a church? Well, I think that what we learn is that we must continue to be outward-looking. For the Gospel calls us not only to repentance and faith, but also to go to our neighbour, our community, our nation, and indeed to all the nations. And even though we can't always do that individually, we can be partners in the Gospel by supporting in prayer and giving those who go out from our parish and our diocese. And though as a church we systematically commit to local and overseas mission, and to sharing our lay preachers and teachers with neighbouring parishes, we are also recipients of ministry and funds from outside the parish. Anglican Aid in Sydney, for example, has been very generous in asking us to help distribute funds for drought assistance in our community. And only next week the bishop shall be with us to share from God's word. Second thing that this chapter teaches us about being a church is that as we seek to live our lives as a community of God's people in Inverell, we shall face both opportunity and opposition. Paul speaks of both in verses 8 and 9. He says, I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. The door for effective work in Ephesus is described by Luke in the book of Acts. 
And there he details some of Paul's evangelistic efforts in chapters 19 and 20. And his summary sentence is to say that in Ephesus, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. But it didn't happen automatically. It didn't happen simply because Paul walked through an open door. Effective work was done, but not without great opposition. Paul confronted opposition from the powers of evil, opposition from the powers of commerce, and opposition from the powers of religion. And though Inverell cannot be directly compared with what was once the thriving and ancient port city of Ephesus, it is fair to say that to us also is opened a great door for effective work. And that great door is what Jesus describes as an open field ready for harvest. Now that's not to say that Israel is simply waiting for us to invite them into the kingdom of God. Clearly they are not. But it is to say that when the work of planting and watering is done, then God will give the increase and the sower and the reaper shall be glad together. And though to some harvest may seem like something that just happens automatically, every farmer knows that harvest is the fruit of much labour and at times opposition. And just as Paul faced opposition, so too shall we, as the word of the Lord spreads widely and grows in power. Opposition shall come to us, as it did to Paul, from many forces. For our struggle was not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And though we may not cast out demons, we need to cast out Satan's lies. Lies that tempt us to doubt God's word. Lies that blind us to believe whatever's disguised as an angel of light. Lies that deceive us with signs and wonders of those who pose as false apostles. Lies that distort God's word to distract us from the path of suffering and obedience. Lies that snatch away the word that's sown in our hearts. And lies that accuse us before God, even though Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. And lies come to us not only from the devil, but also from the world. And even though the Inverell Chamber of Commerce is unlikely to rise up against us for having a bad effect on the sale of idols, it is very likely that the world of advertising will want to seduce us. They will have us believe that there is a wealth of stuff out there that you could not possibly do without. They will tell you that there is no one more worthy and more deserving of self-indulgence than you. They will tell you that you owe it to yourself to put number one first, for nothing is more central to your identity than your possessions and your personal autonomy. Don't believe any of that for a moment. Perhaps 
the most difficult opposition we may face will not come from the devil or the world, but from those who purport to be religious, from those who claim to represent the mainstream of religious orthodoxy. It is unlikely today that religious leaders will insist that you be circumcised according to the law of Moses, but it is very likely that you'll be asked to believe not more, but less. If you regard the Old and New Testaments as authoritative and reliable words from God, then you will be thought of by some as naive and unintelligent. Invoke the Bible to support a traditional Christian morality, and you will be labelled as unloving and discriminatory. Call for repentance from sin and faith in the atoning work of Christ alone, and the response will border on apoplexy as liberal scholars line up in turn to deny sin, sacrifice, salvation, and any suggestion of the supernatural. Brothers and sisters, a great door for effective work is open for us, but there is also much opposition. So be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous and strong, and do everything in love. Last thing that this chapter teaches us about church is that because we have resources, we also have responsibilities. We know that we have a responsibility to share and steward our finances wisely, but we also have other responsibilities as well. And some of these we learn from the example of Stephanus. As we read in verse 15, his household were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. You may remember from chapter 1 that Paul says of Stephanus' household that they were one of the few that he personally baptised. And what's significant about this household is their devotion to serving the Lord's people. So important was devotion to service that Paul recognises Stephanus and others like Fortunatus and Archaicus who laboured with him. And he recognises them to be leaders in the church, leaders that we can submit to because they have a shepherd's heart, the heart of a servant, leaders that can see a need and address it and who refresh the spirits of those that they minister to. Leaders as such, Paul says in verse 18, they deserve recognition. As a church, therefore, we too need to recognise such leadership and work hard to value it and to nurture it. It's the sort of leadership that doesn't necessarily come from theological college, and nor is it limited to the articulate, the bold and the charismatic. For as Jesus says, the greatest among us will be our servants. Such leadership comes from the grace of God who equips his people with gifts of service in the fellowship of the saints. The households of Stephanus, Fortunatus and Archaicus were like that and thus they became effective testimonies to the reality of the risen Christ in Christian family and community. And our families likewise are invaluable resources for our church as we seek to grow the kingdom of God 
in our fellowship and our community. And every one of us is a part of that community, that fellowship, that family. And thus we each have a responsibility to use our gifts for the service of God's people and for the glory of God's name. And as we use our gifts for such purpose, then we will, as a church, we will fulfil our vision of growing in Christ. We shall grow as a church with a local task and a global mission. We shall take every opportunity to proclaim the word of God, both in and out of season, and we shall do it with great patience and careful instruction, fully aware of all that opposes us, and yet fully confident that he who calls us is faithful and he will do it. And we shall go forward with confidence that God has equipped us for works of service, so that the body of Christ will be built up till we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And we shall do this committed to our core values of biblical teaching, prayer, spiritual growth, loving people and godly leadership. Now that seems a fitting place to finish the sermon and to leave 1 Corinthians for now. Uh, but Paul has a final greeting and he takes up the pen from his scribe and he writes with his own hand. And what he says in verse 22, it's worth having a look, it, it really takes you aback. You certainly don't expect to be reading a curse at this stage. So what's going on here? Well, clearly Paul feels quite strongly about whoever does not love the Lord. And just as clearly, he is not talking about unbelievers. For unbelievers are not the object of Paul's scorn. They're the recipients of his gospel. He's talking about supposed believers those whom he quotes in chapter 12 as saying, Jesus be cursed. These are among the few who have been causing chaos to the believers and heartache to the apostle. Paul's curse upon those who would stumble the church is consistent with Jesus' warning that anyone who causes one of his little ones to stumble would be better off to have been thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck. So anxious is Paul to see God's saints in Corinth sanctified in Christ and firm to the end, blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he says to them, Maranatha. For Maranatha is an Aramaic phrase that goes back to the earliest days of the church in Palestine. And it expresses the deepest conviction the early church that the Lord would come soon and that too well that's our longing that's our deepest conviction while we wait for the blessed hope for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ that the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen.